And it is, uh, it is a real privilege and an honor for me to welcome uh, Navy SEAL Chad Williams. Chad, would you give him a round of applause? All right, man. It's your deal. Go All for right. it. All right. Sounds great. Everyone hear me okay? Yeah. All right. Well, thank you so much for having me out here to be a part of your church, part of this uh, influence, as you've heard. I'm a former U.S. Navy SEAL. I served on SEAL Team 1 and SEAL Team 7. And for those of you that don't know what a SEAL is, most of the men know. I speak to some men's groups, and they're like, we know what a SEAL is, but it's the women. They're like, what's a SEAL? Does he work with marine animals or something? Like, no. Uh, as a matter of fact, SEAL is actually an acronym. And we have our areas of operation, where we operate, right there in the name. So we'll snag those first three letters out of SEAL, S-E-A. We operate in the sea, in the ocean. Uh, we'll go underwater with a diving rig that doesn't let any air bubbles out whatsoever. What's so great about that is you can go swimming into an enemy harbor, undetected, set up a limpet mine maybe under that ship, and disable it, as it were, as you swim on out, remote detonate it. Uh, or we have those Somali pirates that the SEALs are going after on the surface of the water. Uh, my SEAL team was over in Iraq when that was going on, and we actually got called out of Iraq to uh, go after these dudes, but another SEAL team from the East Coast kind of beat us there. They beat us to the race, so they, they got those pirates. Uh, we also operate out of the air, you know, the A part of SEAL. Uh, we do these jumps called high-altitude, low openings. We call them halos. And the reason we do that is we take an airplane so high in the sky nobody could see it. You go jumping out, and then the fun part, the low opening. It's a great excuse to open that parachute at the last moment possible. Uh, that way nobody sees you flying you know, under a canopy and can shoot up at you. And then the L part, land. A lot of people are like, Navy SEALs are over in Iraq and Afghanistan? Like, oh yeah, on the land. To give you guys a little thumbnail sketch of what my SEAL team was doing when we are over there, in Iraq, we basically were commissioned, we were tasked, we were given certain duties to bring sabotage upon uh, the enemy. We're hunting down terrorists. And the way we're going to do this is we're going to bring a certain influence, as it were, on the ISOF, which is the Iraqi Special Operations Forces. So we wanted to train these guys, teach them side by side, and go out with them, lead from the front on these operations, show them how, how to find one of these guys that you know, is making these IEDs and these suicide vests, hunt them down, go grab them and bag them and gag them and bring them home and get some information out of them. So uh, that's what my SEAL team was doing while we were over in Iraq. We kind of went undercover with these guys. We didn't wear our American uniforms. We put on the Iraqi colored uniforms. We went out in the old school Humvees, you know, with our Humvees painted the same colors as theirs. We really became one of these guys. I, I'll tell you what, I blended in just fine once I started growing out a beard. I, I looked Iraqi enough. In fact, my wife's like, when I start growing that beard out too much, she's like, you need to shave that thing. You're looking like a terrorist. <laughs> <laughs> um, so our last operation, we decide, you know what? Let's go ahead and set up a sort of graduation operation. We're going to let these ISOF guys plan this thing from the ground up. They're going to have to know how to operate when we're gone. So we'll let them plan it. We'll let them lead the way. And we'll be there just in case, you know, things hit the fan. So they find this dude that's an Iraqi policeman by day. I mean, he's a policeman by day, but what's he doing? You know, by night, he's making these suicide vests and these IEDs. And we find out where he lives. We know this is going to be our last operation before, you know, I get to go home to Orange County, get back out there in the surf. 
we checked our own intel. Sure enough, this guy was, you know what the saw found him to be. Uh, but what we didn't know about that night, as we're getting up on the trucks, is that we're actually being set up for an ambush. Now, before I get into the details of what happened that night, I want to share with you guys just a little bit of my road to becoming a SEAL. I remember coming fresh out of high school. I had some success uh, in skateboarding. I was sponsored by Van Shoes, but I was just kind of burned out on competing. I'm, you know, attending junior college and ditching class, going surfing, and the finals were coming up. I wasn't skateboarding so much anymore, and I kind of realized, man, I'm turning out to be a loser. I'm wasting my life. I'm turning out to be the exactly the kind of guy I never wanted to be. Nobody wants to be. You know, I'm just a pot smoking, drinking, failing loser. And so I'm sitting in the parking lot at Golden West College, about to walk into finals, and I realize it doesn't even matter if I ace these finals. I'm still going to fail the classes. That's how far behind I am. So I want to do something with my life. I want to do something else. I don't want to go to school. You know, what is something that could just really deliver for me the ultimate? So I start thinking, maybe I can go be an Alaskan crab fisherman. That's a pretty dangerous job. Yeah, I can go do that. And then the idea came to me, you know what? I could be a Navy SEAL. And so I decided, that's it. I'm going to be a Navy SEAL. So I drove out of the parking lot. Don't need to go to school now. I'm going to be a Navy SEAL. (laughs) And uh, the time came where I was going to have to let my folks know, like, Dad, it's time to, you know, face the music here. Uh, I'm failing all my classes, but it's okay. I got a plan. I'm going to be a Navy SEAL. And if you can imagine the look on my dad's face, I mean, he's like, you haven't stuck with skateboarding? You can't even make it in junior college? You know, the military is pretty serious. Like, when you sign up for the military, you're signing your life away. You're going to find yourself, if you don't make it through SEAL training, chipping paint in Japan or something off some boat. And I went out of there so frustrated and just fuming because I knew I was going to make it as a SEAL, and he's kind of showing some doubt in me. Well, he calls me back in to his office, and he goes, so you really want to do this, huh? You want to be a SEAL? I'm like, yeah, I want to be a SEAL. He goes, okay. Well, I contacted a Navy SEAL, and he wants to do a workout with you. (laughs) Oh, really? Like, I wasn't ready for this. Hold on. I was like, wait, I want to do my own training. He's like, no, check it out. Shows me on his computer, and this is a... His reply, can Chad come out and play tomorrow? (laughs) And so he goes, you're meeting up with this guy in Oceanside. You're going to do a workout with him. Well, here's the conversation my dad had with that Navy SEAL that I didn't know about at the time. I would find out later. Uh, You see, my dad contacted this man by the name Scott Helvenston, who was no ordinary Navy SEAL, if there ever were such a thing. And he says, look. My son, he wants to be a Navy SEAL. He doesn't know what he's getting himself into. So if I pay you some money to beat the desire of becoming a SEAL out of him, I mean, just bury him, do whatever you want. Would you be willing to do that? So that was in the email, but he scrolled past that, and then Scott's reply, can Chad come out and play tomorrow? So I don't know what I'm getting myself into. I wind up finding myself on a run with this guy, Scott. He lets me kind of get out ahead of him a little bit. And I'm thinking, all right, I'm doing all right. I'm ahead of the seal. Well, he winds up catching up to me. I'm looking back behind my shoulder as this dude like Terminator 2 is just running up on me, passes me, but then he stops right in the trail. And I thought to myself, well, that was dumb. I'm taking this opportunity to pass him. But just as I got right up to where Scott was, I don't know this guy, right? He impales me with his fist. I'm going in the air on my back, and then he jumps on top of me like a madman and just starts 
ragdolling me. I still remember the sound of just like my shirt just ripping and the threads just going. And he's screaming in my face, you want to be a seal? And I just thought like, this guy is nuts. Like, what did I get myself into? And he jumps off me and he goes running away. He turns around. He's like, you better stay three paces behind me. And I decided it's now or never. I'm like 18 years old. And I'm willing to have a, a heart attack to try and stay up there with this guy, Scott. And so I end up sticking with him for like three miles. And then we circle up. And I'm just looking at him like, who is this guy? I mean, I can't fight him. He's a Navy SEAL. You know, should I like call the cops or something? And he's like, hey, if you were to go another mile with me, could you have stuck with me? I told him I would die before I quit. And he goes, all right. He goes, you want to work out again tomorrow? And I'm just thinking these beat-ups are like par for the course. Like, we didn't talk about this. Like, hey, what was that back there, you know? But I'm like, yeah, okay, you know, I'll do it. Well, he winds up having another conversation with my dad that I would find out about later. He says, look, I know you wanted me to beat the desire of becoming a seal out of your son, but I actually think he has what it takes to make it, and I'd like to start working with him from this day forward. So needless to say, he never beat me up again like that. He actually began to kind of come alongside me and train me up, and I absolutely idolized Scott. He became my mentor. He was like a second father to me, just took me right under his wing, uh, you know, he'd refer to me as, you know, junior. Uh, and like I said, Scott's no ordinary Navy SEAL if there ever were such a thing. He was the youngest man to ever make it through SEAL training. You'd never guess the age. He made it through at 17 years old. He's a U.S. Navy SEAL. That's the record. Nobody will ever beat it. Uh, he also is a world champion pentathlete. So you've heard of the triathlon before at the three events. Well, he's got this world champ status of a pentathlon five events. Uh, he also has the record time on the obstacle course at the SEAL Command. So to kind of put that into perspective, there's no Navy SEAL in the world that could beat this Navy SEAL on an obstacle course, which leads right into one more. There's this program that was on TV for a while. It was called Man vs. Beast. And Scott was telling me, you know, the producer's whole premise to this program is he always wanted to show how the beast would win a human being. They put these wild animals up against human beings in competitions, and it was Scott's time. His number was up to go up against a chimpanzee through an obstacle course. This chimp was trained to go through an obstacle course faster than any human being. Uh, but what they didn't know is that they're putting this chimp up against none other than Scott Helvinston. So Scott's head-to-head -head with this chimpanzee uh, as they go through the obstacle course, and he just burns him, just blazes right through this chimp. Boom, Scott wins. And Scott was laughing about it, you know, telling me, I remember when we were going mountain climbing one day, I'm just looking over at him thinking, this guy is my hero. He's everything I want to be. He's got his arm up there on the wheel of the car, and I'm just like, I've got the mental picture in my head still of like what his forearm like looks like. I'm like, I want my forearm to be just like Scott's. And he goes, you know, Junior, they only aired my show one time. They reran every one of those programs where the Beast wins over and over and over on TV, but they'd only air mine once. And I remember like, this is just so awesome. I get to hang out with an extraordinary Navy SEAL, but the time was coming he was kind of prompting me. He's like, all right, Bob, it's time for you to get the ball rolling on, you know, going into boot camp and everything. And I, I know. And so I signed up for the military. And I got a little bit of time before I go away. And one of the ways that Scott and I would wrap up a workout, we'd go running, swimming, kayaking, mountain climbing, you name it together. Uh, but we'd wrap up a workout usually over at his place uh, in the pool. And he would teach me, like, underwater knot tying I'd need to know in SEAL training. 
And we would just kind of philosophize, like talk about what we got going on in life. And he says, you know, I've got this opportunity to go overseas again and, you know, perhaps, you know, make a difference over there. And he says, I'd be going over to Iraq. It'd only be a couple months. And by the time I get done, you'll be done with boot camp. And you'll be back here in Southern California starting SEAL training. I'll be back in time. And I'll be right there with you as you're going through it. And he goes, what do you think I should do? Should I do it? And I'm like, yes, absolutely, Scott. Do it. You are going to kill so many bad guys and tell me all about it. And I remember the look he had. You know, I realized, wow, that was a real stupid thing that just came out of my mouth. You know, but in my mind, Scott was absolutely superhuman. I saw him do things that were superhuman, you know, where it's just me and him, and he's climbing up the face of a cliff, 200 feet, sheer drop off, one slip, no rope, one slip, and he'd be dead. And he'd be just doing these things like he couldn't be harmed in my eyes. And so Scott decides to go ahead and do it. And I get a phone call from him just days before I'm going into boot camp now. He goes, all right, Bubba, it's about time for me to go do this thing, referring to going over to Iraq. He goes... I just want you to know something I've never told anybody that I've ever trained before. He goes, I know that you're going to make it. And that meant the world to me to hear that from Scott. And so I decide, you know what, if I can't work out with Scott in person since he's gone, I've only got a few days left, I'll just work out with him on video. He's recorded some of these workouts. I'll just wake up first thing in the morning, you know, throw a, you know, a workout in. Start my day with Scott. And so one morning I wake up, I go turn on the TV, I'm about to throw the workout in when I look on the TV, and Scott's face is on TV before I push the workout in. So I'm like, what? Like, what's Scott doing on TV? Him being on TV is nothing strange. It's just he didn't let me know. He's on TV for a lot of things, like that man versus beast. And so as I look, my eyes go to the bottom of the screen, and I see Scott's birth date followed by a dash. which says March 31st. 2004, I couldn't believe what I was seeing. And before I could even really make the connection, that frame switches to video footage now of Scott. It's video footage of Scott in Iraq. He's laying on the ground. He's got an angry Iraqi mob that has surrounded him. They're videotaping everything they're doing, and they've sent it back to the States. And I see Scott's clothing, it's smoldering on fire. Those arms that I memorized, that I have the mental pictures of still to this day on the wheel of that truck, uh, are lifeless. And they're beating on his body with rods. And they're chanting in Arabic, Fallujah is the graveyard of Americans. And then they took a rope, and I'm watching as they wrap rope around my hero's legs, and they hook him up to a car. And they go dragging his body through the town of Fallujah, and they hang him upside down from the Euphrates River Bridge like a piece of meat, and they burn his body. I can't even describe to you the feelings that I was having when I was watching this. I felt like I just went numb, like absolute evil had just entered into me. And before, I wanted to be a SEAL because I wanted to be just like Scott. Now, I just want to go over there, and I want to personally rip out the hearts of those men that did that to Scott. And so my time came to go off to boot camp, go through boot camp, and now it's into SEAL training. And, you know, they say SEAL training is the most difficult military training there is in the world. You know, I'd say maybe the numbers speak for themselves. I started with a class of 173 guys, every one of them professing that they would die before they quit. And out of those 173, by time graduation day came, uh, only 13 of those original faces were still there. 
Uh, the guys that quit, they need to ring a brass bell in front of everybody uh, three times. One of the most difficult parts of SEAL training is a portion of it called Hell Week, where it's five and a half days long. You get four hours of sleep, and that's not four hours of sleep at night. It's a grand total of four hours of sleep for the five and a half days where you're running everywhere you go with either a boat or a telephone pole. Uh, you're soaking wet, not a dry moment. You're shivering from the first 15 minutes of Hell Week. They've got you in the ocean at 1 o'clock in the morning, and that shivering doesn't stop. Uh, for those five and a half days, you've you know, you got sand rubbing in all the unfriendly places. You rub the hair out of the top of your head with this boat to the point where you have a bald spot. Guys' legs have broken under the pressure. Their necks have broken under the pressure of the boat. Still training is pretty tough, but that graduation day, man, I finally made it. I've become a SEAL. Thinking back to that day in the parking lot over at the junior college, if I could just become a SEAL, you know, that would deliver for me the ultimate, my ultimate purpose and meaning in life. And let me tell you, the day I became a SEAL, it's one of the happiest days of my life. It was also one of the lowest days of my life, and I didn't understand it. But I'd find these words to be so true, spoken by a man named Ravi Zacharias. He says, one of the loneliest moments a man will ever experience is when he's achieved that which he thought would deliver the ultimate, in the end, it lets him down. That was my experience. The author of Ecclesiastes says, there's nothing new under the sun. Ultimately, everything is just grasping after the wind. And so, becoming a seal wasn't delivering. For me, I'm absolutely miserable now. Uh, I don't want to let my friends know about it. They're all there at the graduation. My family's there, and they're like, dude, you got to be living the dream, man. You became a SEAL. You did what you wanted to do. And I just be like, yeah, you know, I didn't want to let them know. Like, dude, I'm more miserable now than I've ever been in my life. And I didn't understand it. I'm not, I'm not a Christian at this time. Like, what is wrong with me? And so I get put on SEAL Team 1, which, unfortunately for me, had just gotten back home off a of deployment. All I wanted to do was just go overseas and, and just fight. That's all that's left, you know? I just want to go kill now. But these guys just got back home from a deployment, which meant that they're as far away from deploying again as possible in the cycle of things. All the other SEAL teams will go before them again before their time comes up. So I've got some time left before I get to go deploy. I'm coming back to Orange County and just figure, you know, well, there's not really much left, you know, to life here. So might as well just, you know, drink it up, drink it up, go downtown, do whatever. Just And so I'd be drinking to the point where I'd be blacking out, doing stupid things. I'm going to get myself killed or somebody else killed. Uh, I'd be using my, my folks home as sort of like a, a crash pad to just go sleep. So I'd be out downtown Huntington and black out be showing up at their front door, and I've got blood on me, and I don't even know it yet, and I've, my shirt's ripped off, I've lost my shoes somewhere along the way, and all of a sudden, memory starts coming back where my, my mom's like, Chad, Chad, what, where are you cut? You know, you got blood all over you. I'm like, whoa, I do have blood on me, and I'm like, yeah, where am I cut? And I don't have blood, like a cut anywhere on me. I'm getting into fights, and I'm just, I'm really lucky I'm not getting beat up in these situations. Another time I showed up, needing uh, 26 stitches in my knuckles. I don't remember what I did to need those 26 you know, stitches. So if you can imagine, my family finally got to sort of a breaking point. They're like, we love you, you're our son, but if this is what you're gonna go do, you're not welcome at our home. If you'll just stop doing this, please come. We don't want you to do this. But if you're gonna come back to Huntington Beach and all you're gonna do is go out there and, and drink, like you're gonna get yourself killed or you're gonna hurt somebody else so you're not welcome at our home anymore. Please stop. And so 
here's my, you know, wheels turn inside my head. All I cared about was a keg of beer that I'd stolen just a week before that I was hiding in their garage. And I was like, I just want to get to that keg of beer. So I'm thinking, what can I do? And I used a pretty dirty trick. I knew that they were going to be going to some church thing that night. And so I was going to play my cards. I go, you guys are going to go to some church in the night, right? And they're like, yeah. I'm like, all right, I'll go with you guys. Like, you will? And I knew that this thing would be over by 9.30 at night, tops. I don't even start my night till 10, 11 o'clock at night. So I'll just go punch my card over at church. They'll be just so happy. I'll get off their radar, and when they're not looking, I'll just slip on in, grab that keg of beer, life of the party, let's go. And so I got to let my girlfriend know at the time, like, hey, look, we're going to go do this thing. We're going to do this church event. There's going to be people singing. They're going to know the words. We're not really going to know the words. And, you know, they're going to be really happy. Like, don't be stunned. And then there's going to be this guy that gets up there and speaks. And, you know, if I remember correctly, it's, it's going to be like one of two different guys. On the one hand, we could be really unfortunate. On the other hand, we could be really lucky. It could either be this really old guy named Chuck Smith. He's going to just bore you to death. Or... Or it could be this guy named Greg Vory, and he's a pretty good storyteller. He'll keep us entertained. And so we show up, you know, they're doing the music. I'm looking over at her like, you know, you see, I know. And it's, you know, Greg, Laurie, and I'm like elbowing her like, hey, we're in for a good little treat. And so Greg gets up there, and he begins to speak, and pretty much immediately he grabs my attention. I go from just being kind of like a fly on the wall just waiting for this thing to end where he starts talking about none other than a soldier, and this soldier was a very respected soldier uh, by the name of Naaman. He was a commander. And all these great things about Naaman, big, powerful man, respected, but, there's a big but there, but he had leprosy. Leprosy was a disease, a skin disease that nobody during Naaman's time had ever been healed of. And we could just imagine, you know, what type of man he looked like on the outside and how he was so respected. And, you know, perhaps his men didn't really know just how bad his leprosy was as he had all of his armor and his gear on. But he hears about this man, a spokesperson for God by the name of Elisha. And he hears that Elijah could potentially heal him of his leprosy. So he takes his entourage with him and he takes a whole bunch of money. He's going to pay off Elijah. He's going to do whatever he needs to do uh, to be healed. Well, you know what happens? Elijah doesn't even give him the time of day to have a face-to-face -face with him. In fact, he sends a servant to the door to speak to Naaman. And he says, you know, you just go dip yourself in the Jordan River over there seven times. And on that seventh time, when you come up, you'll have brand new skin. You know, you'd have skin like that of a baby. Well, if you can imagine how Naaman felt, he came all this way. He's respected back home. You know, but this man won't even give him this face-to-face. -face, so... He says, forget this, basically. He goes and walks off. He decides, we're going back. I'm not going to go do a stupid little foolish thing like that. We have better rivers where we're from. No. And one of his men comes running up to him. He goes, look, Naaman, hey, you know that if the prophet told you to do some great thing, I mean, you and I could imagine if the prophet told him, you need to knock out 500 push-ups, 100 sit-ups, and then go crawl on your knees and elbows like he would do it. Or if you need to pay some big, great amount of money, he would do it. But because it was such a simple thing, it seemed foolish to him. His pride got in the way, lacked that humility, and he turns and he walks away. And his man points this out to him. He says, just do it. And so 
we could just imagine maybe what was going through Naaman's head as, you know, perhaps for the first time he's really about to expose himself. He's going to have to have some humility in this. Maybe his men are seeing just how bad, like, whoa, like the real Naaman, just how bad it really is. I wouldn't want to be in Naaman's shoes. You know, it's been said that not even the worst criminal in all of Syria would ever want to trade skin, you know, with Naaman. But he decides to go ahead and do it. It's an act of trust, an act of faith as he goes out into the water and he dips himself, you know, four, five times. Nothing's happening. But on that seventh time, just as the prophet said, when he came up, he was healed. It was an act of God. The leprosy was removed, gone. And I'm on the edge of my seat, like I'm with Naaman all the way, like, yeah, forget that prophet, he won't even have a face-to-face with you, like, ah. Well, Greg begins to relate this then to the human condition. He makes it real personal. He goes, you know, Naaman had his leprosy, but, you know, what about you? You have your sin. What type of person are you on the outside like Naaman when in reality you are deteriorating, you're being destroyed? That leprosy leads to death, and sin is a corrosive thing, and it leads to death. It says the wages of sin is death, the lake of fire. And, you know, just as Naaman, he had to strip away that pride, have some humility. What we need to do as men and women is have some humility before God. Jesus would put it this way. He says you have to be willing to take up your own cross and follow after him. You have to be willing to crucify your own flesh to the cross, just as he was crucified up there on the cross. The old person dies. Have some humility. Turn from that sin and put your faith and trust in him the same way that Naaman turned to the water, put his faith and trust in God. And the moment you do that, you have God's word on it, not a human being's word on it, that he will remember your sin no more. It will be washed away. He'll blot out the record removed as far away as the east is from the west. March 14th, 2007, I'm a Navy SEAL. I'm going here just to go get to a keg of beer, and now I find myself just publicly renouncing my sin. It was a tough thing to do to have that humility, but I did. I I turned from my sin, and I put my faith, and I put my trust in Jesus Christ to save me, to save me from that sin. And that March 14th, 2007, I became... You know, Christian, born again, and really, the old man that I was, was stripped away, and I became a new creation. And I was changed. I didn't want to, I didn't even want that cake, I didn't want that cake anymore, I didn't want to get to it. I'm looking at my girlfriend, she's like, what do you, what did you just do? I'm like, I just became a Christian, you know. I'm like, just like, all wild-eyed, she's like, what does this mean, like, and so I'm just all excited. That keg of beer ends up sitting in that garage under a blanket for like over a year. I remember I'm helping my dad clean out the garage one day, and we come across it, and he didn't know about it. It's like been in there that whole time. He's like, what is this? And I'm like, oh, have I got a story to tell you? <laughs> well, I would wind up deploying, and now I've got this different perspective. You know, I'm not out just for blood anymore. Um, I'm all about, you know, just cause. There's evil men out there. They have intentions of harming other people. They want to put these suicide vests on others, not on themselves. They put them on mentally handicapped people and push them on out there. So this is our job. This is what we're to do. I told you guys what I was going to fill you in on what happened that night. So as we're loading up these vehicles and uh, we're headed out, I feel the wind just, you know, hitting me in the face and I'm looking at the road signs and 
uh, all of a sudden it just dawns on me as I'm looking at one road sign, it says Fallujah, Iraq, and I'm like, whoa, we are right in the same area where Scott was, and I began to think, like, I wonder if I'm looking at the same exact freeway signs, you know, that he was looking at uh, before that ambush, and little did we know that we were about to be set up for an ambush that night. So we get to the house where we're going to go grab this guy. Typically, it doesn't turn into a gunfight. We just get the guy we're going after and bring him on back. Uh, but just as we pull up, just everything breaks loose. We're getting fired at from three different directions, taking you know, what we call effective fire as the rounds are impacting the vehicles, and you can hear them ripping through the trees and the bushes behind us. Uh, an ambush is a horrible thing to be in. It's, you know, the, the odds are not in your favor when you're the one being ambushed. But thankfully, let me just tell you guys this much. Men died that night. Thankfully, no one on our team died. We had one guy that was wounded. He was shot in the butt. And he was laughing about it later. Like, it just went in my butt cheek, and I think it just went right on out, guys, you know. <laughs> So men died that night, thankfully no one on our team. And what I really want to highlight, though, is this. We all enjoy freedom. And you heard that term before, you know, freedom isn't free. It costs some men their life. I'm happy to come back home. I'm happy my whole team came back home. But really, the guys we ought to, you know, be most thankful towards are the ones that kiss their wife goodbye for the last time, and they don't know it. They hug their family. And when they go overseas, they lay down their life for the sake of freedom. And so I want to mention a couple of those guys to you to perhaps paint a good perspective of you of the price of freedom. So the first one, another U.S. Navy SEAL, his name's Mike Monsoor. And when Mikey was over in Iraq, he was in a place called Ramadi. He's up on top of a roof, and he's providing some cover for guys that were down on the road when... From an unknown location, there was an insurgent that throws a hand grenade up on the roof, hits Mikey right in the chest, falls to the ground. And if you guys could imagine, he literally had the exit a step away. Like that grenade was not his problem. But there's other seals on the roof with him that didn't stand a chance of making it past this grenade and to the exit. So what does Mikey do? Well, in the ultimate selfless act, he jumps down to the grenade, and just as he gets to that grenade, it goes off, and he absorbs the blast of that grenade all upon himself. His body took it like a sponge, all the shrapnel. And because of what he did, he suffered, and then he died. And the guys on the roof next to him, they lived because of that, because his body worked like a shield to absorb just the blows of that grenade. So mark these words down in history. See if you think them to be true. Greater love has no one than this, than to lay down his life for his friends. The other that I wanted to mention, I've briefly told you a little bit about his story. My mentor, Scott. You know, If you'll remember, he said that he was ultimately over there to make a difference. He's over, the, over there for the sake of freedom. So while Scott's overseas, you know, he's killed. He's dragged through that town of Fallujah. He's hung upside down from that Euphrates River Bridge. His body set aflame for what? Ultimately for the sake of freedom. Greater love has no one than this, and one that lays down his life for his friends. Now, I don't know if you guys recognize those words that I'm quoting. I'm quoting somebody there. I'm quoting none other than Jesus Christ. And he said that at a time before he went to the cross. 
And so we're very far removed from what happened to Christ 2,000 years ago on the cross. It's almost like we lack the proper perspective. But it hits home real close when we talk about these soldiers that have laid down their life for the sake of freedom. So let's let these soldiers just help to stimulate exactly what happened at the cross. You see, just as Mike Monsoor jumped on that hand grenade, that grenade was not his problem, remember, but he jumps down on it and absorbs the blows of that grenade all on himself, suffers and dies, but our friends live. Well, Jesus Christ at the cross, he absorbs the blows of our sin upon himself, takes the shock of it all upon himself, and he suffers and dies so that we could have freedom. And just as my friend Scott was killed, he was hung from that Euphrates River Bridge like a piece of meat for the sake of freedom. Well, Jesus Christ, he was killed and he was hung from the cross of Calvary like a piece of meat so that we ultimately could have freedom from the eternal consequences of our sin. Greater love has no one than this and one that lays down his life for his friends. You could see it in soldiers like Mike Monsoor and Scott Helvinston and now even greater Look to the cross. That's what it's all about. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. It says this of him. For he, speaking of the Father, made him Jesus who knew no sin. He was sinless. Just like that grenade was not Mikey's problem. Sin certainly wasn't Jesus' problem. But he became sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God in him. And I want to kind of underline that word might. Because the gospel goes forth. The good news, this free gift of everlasting life is offered to the world. But not everybody will receive it. You know, Jesus points out, wide is the gate, broad is the way that leads to destruction, and there are many that go in by it. Narrow is the gate, and difficult is the way which leads to life, and there are few who find it. You know what the problem is? When people think about it, they go, hmm, the cross, everlasting life, a relationship with God and Jesus Christ, or pursue worldly happiness, money, and whatever stimulates me. At the end of the day, that wide road a lot of people choose to go on is that one that's the other direction away from the cross. Jesus says to count the cost. Consider it. Just like any builder that's about to build a home, before he does that, he counts the cost. What's it going to cost me? What kind of supplies do I need to get together? Jesus brought this up to a rich young ruler when he kind of flippantly said that he wanted to be a follower of hers and, or of his. And, and Jesus says, hey, you really want to be a follower of mine? Are you willing to give up everything for my sake? And at the end of the day, this rich young ruler wasn't. It says he walked away sorrowful from Jesus. Why? Because he had great possessions. You have to be willing to strip away that pride, folks. Say, hey, I'm not doing it my own way anymore. Have some humility before God. Renounce that sin. Just, I don't want anything to do with what Jesus was nailed to the cross for. And put your faith and trust in him. What type of faith and trust do you put in him? This type of faith and trust, say, like a Navy SEAL puts in a parachute. When I pull that ripcord, I've got a pretty good, sensible faith that this thing's going to save me from the consequences of impacting the ground and dying. Well, you put that same type of faith and trust in Jesus Christ, that he will save you, not from the impact of the ground, but the consequences of sin, which he took at the cross. He took our curse upon himself at the cross. So I want to give folks here an opportunity to do that. This is huge right now. Check it out what Jesus says. He says that those that confess me before men, 
In other words, those that aren't, those that aren't ashamed of me, those that confess me before men, this is cool. I'll confess him before my Father who is in heaven. But those that deny me before men, I'll deny him before my Father who is in heaven. You might be saying, well, I'm just not saying anything at all. Well, to say nothing is to say no. So God is your witness right now, the one that spoke this universe into existence. He's in control of our heartbeat. He knows your thoughts. He knows your intentions. What are you going to do? Do you know Jesus Christ? Do you know him as your Lord and Savior? Are you born again? He says, no man will enter the kingdom of heaven unless he is born again. Do you know him? If you do, you know you do. If you don't, you're in a very dangerous place. You're on that wide road. But there's a call to action. That's the bad news. The call to action is respond. You can respond by turning from that sin and putting your faith and trust in him. So if you folks want to know that when you die, you will go to heaven, not because you will never say, God, let me into heaven because I, but let me in because him, because Jesus, because Jesus is my savior and I confess him as my Lord. I want to give you guys an opportunity to get right with God and turn from that sin and put your faith and trust in him. I want to lead you in a prayer. I just want to pray with you guys first though. So would everyone just bow their heads and close their eyes and Father, we thank you so much. Number one, Lord, for the freedoms that we have here in America, that we could publicly worship you and not have any fear of, of being under persecution, Lord. The freedoms that we have here in the U.S., it's so easy to be a follower of Christ here compared to other places in the world. And Lord, we thank you so much for the freedom from the consequences of our sin that Jesus Christ offers there at the cross. And I pray that you would just give folks here the strength, Lord, to do what comes next, that the pride would not get in the way, that they could pierce through it, and they would not be ashamed of you, that they would proudly call you Lord and Savior.